0: Praise God from whom
1: today as we begin our time of worship, there's a chorus we sing, Our God is an Awesome God. Let's stand together as we sing. Our God. Seated. Everlasting to everlasting, He is God. God always provides, God always makes a way. Let's stand together and sing Waymaker. Oh, yeah.
0: I worship you, I worship you, you are here, working in this place, I worship you, I worship you, you are waymaker, maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that who you are you are waymaker miracle worker promise keeper hide in the darkness my God that is who you are you are here turning lives around I worship you I worship you. You are here, mending every heart. I worship you. I worship you. You are Waymaker, Miracle Worker, Promise Keeper, Light in the Darkness. My God, that is who you are. You are the promise keep light in the darkness my god that is who you are 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 that is who, you are. That is who you Even when I don't see it, you're working Even when I don't feel that you're working You never stop, you never stop working You never stop, you never stop working Even when I don't see it, you're working Even when I don't feel that you're working... You never stop, you never stop working... You never stop, you never stop working... Waymaker, miracle worker... Promise keeper, light in the darkness... My God, that is who you are... Oh, you are... Waymaker, miracle worker... Promise keeper, light in the darkness my God, that is who you are. That is who you are. That is who you are. That is who you are.
2: uh, I'd like to read from the Word this morning a a passage of Scripture that we all know well, and I'd like to read it together. Uh, As we read the Word together, it brings about a corporate understanding of, of the Word, not just necessarily from a personal devotional side, But from a corporate side, we have a body here of believers, and it's good for us to come around the word sometimes and read Matthew chapter five, verses 13 through 16 are a good reminder for the church. It's a good reminder as believers, um, as uh, uh, what our roles are in the world. Um, What are we here for? Um, and, and how do we how do we evangelize? How do we practice the gift of salvation to us? So Jesus reminds uh, the, the, the listeners in his Sermon on the Mount of this great truth. And so let's read this together beginning in verse 13. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So let your, or rather, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Amen, church. Beautiful reminder to us this morning from the word of God. We are the salt and the light. And as we lift our voices together in in worship, let's be that salt and light this morning. Um, Let's let's share with the world the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together and Brother Richard will come and lead us in worship. Father, we are grateful this morning as we come into this house of worship. We're grateful for the many blessings that we enjoy in life simply because you love us. Father, your grace uh, abounds. Uh, Father, your mercy is anew every day. Uh, and Father, even on this Lord's Day, as we gather together as believers, uh, Father, we are reminded of the wonderful blessings and sacrifices that you have given uh, to us uh, because of your love for us. Father, we have Jesus, uh, who died on a cross for our sins, that we might be redeemed from our fallen nature. Uh, Father, we have one another, the church, the body that is the bride of Christ. Father, and her, her unique giftedness to be able to, to, to evangelize the world, to teach them, All things that you have taught us, Father, to go and make disciples, to baptize, Uh, and Father, to to be the salt and light of the earth. God, what a privilege it is to serve you this morning. Father, what a a privilege it is to be able to gather together with our brothers and sisters here at First Baptist Church. Uh, Father, as we join our voices and our song together with our brothers and sisters around the world, Father, may this day be glorifying to you. May souls be saved, may the word be preached, Uh, Father, may lives be changed, uh, God, because of your great love for us. Uh, God, as we sing our songs and as we read the word uh, and as we observe this Lord's Supper this morning, Father, we pray that it is all edifying for the body and glorifying to you. Father, may our hearts be drawn closer to you this morning, uh, having been in attendance at this church, Uh, Father, but... But most of all, may all that we say and do be an honor to you. And may this gift of worship be pleasing in your sight. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. And amen.
1: Jesus has come to save us, to redeem us. And because of that, we are not in bondage to sin. He has released the chains and we have been set free. Amazing grace my chains are gone. Let's stand together. This is our offertory hymn as we sing and as we worship together.
0: Amazing grace How sweet the sound That saved the wretch like you hey. is
2: our call.
0: You will be forever mine, you are forever
2: two bottles of water because they're both tiny and we all know that a tiny bottle of water for a big man like this is just not going to cut it okay so um y'all bear with me as i fumble with water up here and uh, and and just rejoice brother brother richard thank you so much for just a beautiful worship uh through the music and uh and and, and what a wonderful illustration too about how god gives us second chances you know i, I guess i've never thought about the old etch a sketch and um uh, I don't even know what the other thing was called, but uh, um, it, what was it? The slate? A slate? Okay, well, there, so yeah, so uh, great illustration, wonderful illustration, wonderful picture, if you will, especially as we set up our discussion today from the book of First John. We're going to be in the book of First John today, chapter 2, verses 3 through 14, uh, destination, sermon number 3, part 3 of our First John uh, series. Now, making our way through this uh, sermon series, if you haven't been here or you're maybe just catching up, uh, we've discussed how 1 John, in and of itself, as an epistle, as in a letter uh, to uh, John's readers, is an assurance. It's a a letter about assurance and salvation. Um, We've discussed how John makes a really really cogent uh, argument about how one can be saved. Um, In his first sermon, he starts with Jesus, because invariably that's where you have to start. He he talked about how Jesus, uh, or rather that Jesus came, and and that he lived, that he died, that he rose again, and that he's returning soon. Uh, In the second sermon of last week, as uh, Brother Richard just briefly alluded to, uh, John builds on that and tells us why Jesus came. And that was to give us fellowship with the Father. That was the point. That was the why. So Jesus came, that's, that's, that's important to start with. He, he came to give us fellowship with the Father, that's important too. And so he builds this argument in this next sermon series, or this next argument, about how one can know they are saved. Um, my Bible, in, this, in, this, uh, in its breakdown, has the test of knowing him, a spiritual test. Test, an assessment that believers can, can take to know whether they are saved. And that's kind of where John begins in verse 3. So let's let's stand together let's read God's word beginning in verse 3 of chapter 2. And we'll read all the way down to verse 14. John says this By this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, Is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought also, or ought himself also, to walk just as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is, uh, is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. For he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I write to you little children because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you little children because you have known the father. I have written to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you young men because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome..." the wicked one. Let's pray this morning over this word. Father, I thank you for this word this morning. Father, as we have just now heard it it with our ears, Father, may it now pass past just an audible understanding of it. Father, may it now go into our minds. And Father, may it not just rest there only, but may it go into our souls this morning so that we become doers of the word and not hearers only. Father, what a blessing it is to read your word this morning in this assembling of the saints. Father, as now my commentary serves to do it justice, may you bless my mouth and may you bless the ears upon which your word falls. And we pray this now in Christ's name. And amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. Now, one of the places that I want to start with this discussion about a salvation test, and, and, and John, John really does this well. Uh, in, this, in this third sermon series, I, I, this salvation test, if you will, about being saved. But notice, and I, and I want to start here, notice John doesn't refer to salvation as being saved. He doesn't say that anyway, all right? And I know in our modern understanding of, 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 of Christianity and theology, and, and we, we reduce the process of being saved or just being saved itself to just being saved. Many times, we oftentimes don't even know what that means. We just say it because that's the cliche that captures the entirety of salvation. But John doesn't refer to it that way. John doesn't refer to, if you will, being saved as just simply being saved. John recognizes salvation as having fellowship with God. Don't miss that. To John, a guy who personally knew Jesus... Salvation was about more than simply praying a prayer or attending church or just simply being a good person. To John, it was about having a close personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, If we could rephrase all of that, being saved is about having a close personal relationship with Jesus. That's what it is. Right? And all of the inner workings, all of the interpersonal aspects of it, the nature of the relationship works itself out in this test. Okay? Because one can answer these questions, and John says, No, not that we're saved necessarily. Look at verse 3 again. By this we can know that we know him. That's salvation. And that's what John's looking for. That's what he's really going for is the knowledge that you know the Father, that you have a fellowship with Him, that you have a relationship with Him. And so John teases this out in a very simplistic way. This is a test that has two questions. And your sermon, your, uh, your, out, your outline and your bulletin breaks it down. The first two parts are those two questions. The first question is, do you love God? Do we have a fellowship with God that supersedes just a confession? Because we know that we have fellowship with the Father if we keep His commandments. That's what John is getting at here. If we love God and we say we love God, then we ought to keep His commandments. Why? Because keeping His commandments expresses our love for Him. If we do, if we love God, and, and and many of us will say that we do, because that's where John starts, he asks us in essence, do you love God? Well, I mean, invariably most of us will say, Yeah, of course we do. And then he's gonna say, Well, great. How do you know? And that where the question becomes a little bit more practical because it cuts to the core of one's claim. Because there's a lot of people this morning that claim the name of Christ. But they don't love the Lord. Those are different things. It's where the rubber meets the road. This question anyway. It's the intersection of what the apostle James would call, or the brother of Christ, James, would call the intersection between faith and works. In fact, James, in his epistle, puts it like this. You believe that there is one God? You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do, you want, but do you want to know, O oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead? In essence, he's getting to the same point that John is making for us here. If you love God, and if you say you love God, then it goes without saying that you will keep his commandments. The thou shalt and the thou shalt not. The things that God says to do, we will do. And the things that God says not to do, we won't. Because anyone can say they love the Lord, but only those who truly keep His commandments actually do. And this is because they are motivated out of love for Him. Amen. There's one thing to follow the, the constru- instruction or the admonition of your parents because you were afraid of them. It's a whole other thing to do it because you love them. You wanted to please them. You wanted to make them happy. Those that say they love God and are not motivated to keep his commandments are really simply giving lip service to the confession. They're neither motivated nor nor concerned about pleasing God whatsoever. In fact, it's these latter ones that are often motivated to please themselves. Thus, the commands of God to them are in the way. And so they have to go around them. Only those who love God, though, will see his commands as a privilege to serve, as a privilege to obey, because they're motivated by love. Now, John doesn't say this here in this text, but I want to jump ahead a little bit to bring this together, to build a bridge between John's argument here and the John's argument later in the end of his book in chapter 5. In verses 1 through 3, go ahead and jump over there, if you will, just a few pages, if you will. Same argument, same, same uh, emphasis, same thesis that John makes in chapter 2. He makes again in verse 1 of chapter 5. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And, who, and anyone who loves him, who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God. And we keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. See, that's the next point to John's uh, his argument here. It's that our love for God predicates obedience. It's our love for God that compels us to please Him by doing what He tells us and not doing otherwise. Those that don't love God or those that truly don't love God will find his commandments. And John uses this word burdensome. They will find his commandments inconvenient. Those who don't love God will look at the law of God and say, mm, do I really have to? I mean, it's, a kind of, it's kind of an inconvenience now, Lord, for me to do this right now, to be obedient to it anyway. They'll look at it as inconvenient or burdensome or whatever, the, whatever they have to do thus they'll do whatever they have to do to go around them, ignore them, change them, disobey them. And that's the world that we have around us today, a world that doesn't love God. And thus they don't keep his commandments because they see them as burdensome. It's in the way of their life. It's in the way of their fun. It's in the way of their, of their pleasure, and so they just excuse themselves altogether. But John says, go back over to chapter 2. John says that, that we that love the Lord and are happy to follow his commands, we do so because we walk as he walked. Verse 6. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. See, those are the ones that are quick to discover the commands of God. They are the ones who would discover that they're actually good for them. That the commands of God, they're actually fitting for holiness. They're actually profitable for a healthy, functional life. That they are indeed appropriate boundaries in a world. where be honest with you, anything's become permissible. I can do whatever I want now. Those are the ones, those, those, those ones that love God, that keep His commandments, are the ones that find the boundaries of God as good. That they're not burdensome. That the Lord's not asking too much from us. You know, I think oftentimes in our Christian life, especially when it's incompatible to the carnal one or the secular one that we live around us, we want to overcomplicate the issues when when, when God's word says it's pretty simple. I mean, if you really look at the commands of God from beginning in Genesis to Revelation, if you really broke them down, they're really practical. He he, he just wants us to do things like abstaining from sexual immorality. Do do you know how much trouble, how much heartache, how how much pain you can save yourself in this world by abstaining from sexual immorality? And that's a big chunk of God's word. He doesn't want us to give and be given to things in of our flesh, like like greed or partiality or envy. It's a big chunk of God's teaching as well. He wants us to be one with the Father and one with each other. That's a big chunk of the New Testament. He wants us to love others as we love ourselves. It's a big chunk of the New Testament teaching. Simple, and you can, even, you can even narrow it down even further. You can say things like "husbands, love your wives." As Christ loves His church. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Children, obey your parents. Do you know how much of the entirety of God's commands are factored into those things? And so we, 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 we like to overcomplicate and we like to, 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 to dwell on these very abstract or very exceptional things when God's Word is very clear on very fundamental things. That if we just focused on being obedient to those things we would spare ourselves a lot of heartache because there's nothing in Scripture that is too much to ask from a God who has done everything to secure our eternal soul. There's nothing in the Word that's, that's too much for a God who has been faithful to us in so many ways, who provides for us, who takes care of us, who loves us. And who still, as we are discovering on Wednesday nights, advocating for us before a holy God. It's not too much to obey God's commandments. In fact, that's the first test. You love God, you keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Now, if you put those two together, you get to this third point, we can conclude safely that those who say they love God and do not keep his commandments are not Saved. All right? And I'm I'm using our modern language. John would say, those who say they love God and do not keep His commandments do not have a fellowship with God. They do not have a relationship with God. They do not have a close personal interaction with the God of heaven and earth. We would say they're just not saved. Okay? Because this is the natural consequence of of these two points. We can safely conclude that this is true. John would tell us this morning that not having a a, a close personal relationship with God will be consequential of not following His commandments. That, That those kinds of people will not have a life that is transformational or meaningful. He would say, John, I mean, would say that those lives the lives that say they love God and don't keep his commandments are incongruent and incompatible with scripture. They are incongruent with the way the Lord says it is okay for believers to live. And so naturally, if one fails to answer this question on this test, if you miss question one, then it doesn't matter what question two says because you failed the test already. It's very simple. Do you love God? Yes. Okay, do you keep his commandments? How do you do? How do you perform? The second part of this test is the latter half of John's exhortation here is about loving others. We know we have fellowship with the Father when we love one another. Now, this is, the, this is where it, it seems to get a little bit more blurry or abstract in our world today because uh, of the way relationships work. But in scripture, it's really not that complicated. When we love God, guess what? We love each other. We love one another. In fact, he, John just says we love others. Whether they're family, whether they're friends, whether they're coworkers, it doesn't matter who they are, they're others. And in the scriptures, we don't get the benefit of loving family and not loving coworkers We don't get the benefit of loving people who think like us and hating people who don't. We don't get the privilege of loving people who look like us and not loving people who don't. We don't get that privilege. The test is, do you love God? Do you keep his commandments and do you love others? Because that is the second question of the salvation test. A right relationship with the Father, a a right fellowship with the Father, naturally produces a right relationship and fellowship with others. They are consequential. In fact, John says that loving others is the most consequential result of living in fellowship with God. He says, if that's the case, when we love one another, the darkness recedes. That's what he says, "The darkness is passing... He, said it's, it's, it, he says that in verse 8. Write to you a new commandment, which, you, which thing is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Remember what he said in the last sermon, verse 7, if you look back at chapter 1. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. and The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all You see, here's the thing. When the light of Christ shines into our lives, it gives us fellowship with one another. It gives us the ability to love others. And as I said, this involves family, it involves friends, strangers, even your enemies. It gives you the capacity, the ability to even love those who hate you gives us the ability to love saints and sinners it gives us the ability to love people who believe differently than us who look differently than us who think differently than us because that's what the gospel does it brings us all together in christ and it shines the light on us and when the shine, when the when the light is being shined on us we have fellowship now here's here's the problem with that or here's here's the human problem with that because in God's design, it's perfect. But in our capacity as humans, we, we, we can mar that. We, we have our, our personalities. We have our differences. We have our disagreements. And, and, in, the, and in any given fellowship, in any, any, any relationship, you have to work that out. It's true for marriage. It's true for your kids. It's true for your friends your family. It's true for church. In fact, the more people that you have, the more problems that you end up getting, probably. That's just the way it is. And so how do we keep fellowship with one another despite our differences, despite our our divisions and all of those kinds of things? Well, John tells us loving others is made possible by abiding in the light. We stay in the light. Amen. We don't let darkness creep in. We don't let darkness come in and begin to overtake us. We stay in the light of Christ. If we do it individually, we will do it corporately. And that's how we abide in Christ. That's how we keep the fellowship going. It's how we keep it strong. That's how we keep relationships with one another. Because when we walk in the light, God gives us the ability or the capability of loving others. And then we can remain in that right relationship. It's the light, remember, that shines in the darkness. It's the light that gives us the ability to know the truth, to practice the truth, to walk in the truth. And it's the truth that unites us. Amen. It's the truth that gives us one accord. We we studied this on Wednesday night. Early part of Acts, we see the disciples in one accord. Now, I jokingly made a comment. That's not a car, by the way. It's It's not a Honda Accord. Okay. It's not talking. They're not. It's not like a clown car and they're all piled into one car and they're all in one accord. Now you got the visual, don't you? You're welcome. They were of one mind. Of one unity. Of one spirit. Of one mission. They were in one accord. I said, now, now you can't help it, can you? But, that's, but, but, but the reason that these apostles even in their diversities, even in their differences. Some of them had more faith than others. Some of them had more knowledge than others. Some of them had more ability than others, but they were all together in one accord. Why? Because they were in the light of Christ. And even when disagreements and even when, even when problems arose, they were able to solve them together. Because it's the truth that united them. It's what empowered them to strive together through good times and bad, through persecutions, through sufferings even. And so the principle here is as long as we stay in the light, the light will do the work. But the moment, be warned, the moment we step in the darkness, we stumble. We practice lies. We allow discord to be sown among the brethren. We allow ourselves to be deceived. This is the warning that John gives to us. But then he gives us the encouragement that, yes, the darkness is passing away, but the true light is already shining. I love this phrase, by the way. It's an illustrative phrase, just like I gave you an illustrative phrase a minute ago where the disciples were in one accord. This is, an, this is an illustrative comment as well. That, that this this new thing, this new commandment of loving one another, gives us the ability to see the light. John says that because Christ has come into the world, the darkness has to flee. Just because Christ came into the world, a new day is dawning. Amen. That's that, that. That means that the day spring from on high has come forth. He has brought the kingdom. He has brought a new era of faith and he is born. He has born again believers with him to accomplish the kingdom work. This means that the work that's done in the darkness is losing its power. It's losing its grip, and it's losing its authority over people's lives. This means that the armies of hell are in full retreat in wait of a final judgment. That's what the light that has come is doing. It's shining in the darkness. And as it shines in the darkness, the darkness flees. shared this illustration with you a thousand times probably. If you ever been in total darkness, absolute darkness, whatever you want to call it, and you shine one light, it will pierce that entire blackness. Just one little light. doesn't take much. As the darkness surrounds you and you can feel it enveloping you, you can feel it. It's power and it's dominion over you. And if you light one little match, the darkness flees. It has to. It can't help but, but flee. When Christ came into our world, incarnated as a baby, and he brought salvation, he shattered the darkness. And it has to flee. It has to flee from your confession to God and to one another. It has to flee from your unity. It has to flee from your oneness. It has to flee as you work out salvation in your life. It has no choice. Because the light of Christ has come. Consequently, as we put these two things together, John says, he who loves God yet hates his brother is not saved. That's just the way it is. This is not because Brother Ben says so. This is not because any other pastor has said so. It's because this is what God says. We cannot safely conclude, or rather we can safely conclude, that those who say they love God yet hate others, they're not of the faith. As John would say, they don't have fellowship with God. John even makes it easier for us to understand. He he takes it and narrows it down even further. Verse 10 He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there's no cause for him uh, for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother. See, he's not even talking about your enemies right now. He's not even talking about perfect strangers that live in Africa somewhere. He's not even talking about people you work with, he's talking about people you worship with. He's talking about people you love the Lord with. He's talking about your brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? If, if we sit here and, 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 and fool ourselves into thinking that we can love God and then hate each other, we're deceiving ourselves. This means that you can attend church nearly every time the doors are open. That you can give faithfully and abundantly and generously. You can be baptized as a child. You can go on all the mission trips you want. You can volunteer at all the church functions. You can serve on any committee you want. You can sing in the choir. You can be a good person. You can give the person beside you the shirt off your back, etc. But if you do it all in hate, it profits nothing. It profits nothing. If that person that does all these things, cannot, will not, or refuses to love his own brother in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything he does is in vain. It's not of the faith. He's not doing it because he loves God. He's not following the Lord's commands and he's not loving others. Thus John would say, he's not of the faith. That's the bottom line. Listen to how Paul tells the Corinthian Christians the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verses 1 through 3. Many of us know this as the love chapter. Love is patient, love is kind, all those kinds of things. But he starts that chapter off with this. Though I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and and though I have faith that that I could remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. And though I could bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. This is a message for the modern church. That there's a fine line between doing benevolent acts of kindness and and mercy, and grace for our own reward versus doing them out of love. Love compels you to not know what the right hand's doing with the left hand. Love is what compels you to do things out of motivation for God, not out of any other reason, not out of any other recourse, Because we can do all of those things and we can do them well and we can do them on into the future and we can say, look at us, and all of those things, but if it's apart from love, it profits nothing. This is a great commandment. This is a tough commandment because sometimes we have to look past our petty disagreements and see each other the way God sees us. As a father, Who's looking at children squabbling and fighting and fussing and bickering and saying, Y'all just love one another. Because it's the love that I've given to you that the whole world is going to know that you belong to me. It's not your benevolence, it's not your kindness, it's not your cultural relevance, it's not any of those things. It's how you love one another because that's hard, that's difficult, it's not easy to do. But therein lies the test of true faith. Now, I'm going to finish up this last part really quick because I know we've got the Lord's Supper to do and, and I don't want to rush through that at all. So I want to summarize these last three points because this is nothing new. John even says, this isn't anything new. It's, it's not like this. It's not like the Lord has come to earth from heaven and given us anything new to, to study for this test. It's literally, do you love God? Do you love others? That's the fullness of of the test. To this point, it was established in the Old Testament. It was affirmed in Christ. This teaching, I mean, it was affirmed in Christ and there are no exceptions to the, to the rule. Those are the three things that John says in the fullness of what he, what he has to say here. Look, This isn't anything new. I haven't given any, verse 7, I haven't written any new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the very beginning. Well, what old commandment is that? Well, concerning loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, Deuteronomy 6, 5 and 6 says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Pretty point blank, isn't it? And then he goes on to say, And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. The part on loving others found in Leviticus 19, 18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's what he says. Jesus affirms this in Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40. When a group of Pharisees thought they'd get cute and tried to gather him in a trap, they asked him what the greatest commandment from God was. And they said, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is just like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang the law and the prophets. So, every little disagreement or every little conversation or every little theological somersault that we want to do with one another, all can be captured by these two things. The entirety of the Christian faith and duty can be captured in these two things. Do you love God and do you love others? If if the answer to either one of those things is no, then you get no exceptions here. You don't get a curve to be graded by. Many of you probably had teachers in school that curved the grade. Amen. You probably relied on that from time to time. A judgment day, you won't be able to rely on a curve. God is not going to stand there and say, Well, you know what? You were a pretty faithful giver and, and you attended church. You had, man, you had 13 years in a row in Sunday school. Wow, that's incredible. Good for you. He's not going to attribute that to righteousness. He's going to ask, Did you love me? And then he's going to ask, Did you love others? Because that is the summary of the law and the prophets. The entirety of the Old Testament and consequently the New, as Jesus now brings in and and ratifies the terms in Him. Jesus, in essence, tells us this morning or asks us this morning, Do you love me? Okay, good. How do you know? By how you love one another. That's the test. And it's, it's quite exceptional, to be honest with you, because God gave us no room for deceptions or misunderstandings or confusion or anything else. He summarized it pretty simply for us. And so we have yet now to ask those two questions. Do we love God? Do we love others? If the answer is yes, then you do well. Praise God. But if the answer is no to either one of them, John would say, you do not have a fellowship or relationship with God. Now will be the time to fix that. Amen, church? Let's pray this morning as we close. Father, I'm grateful this morning for this word. Father, for this wonderful reminder from the Apostle John, our brother. Father, that, uh, that we can know that we have eternal life. Father, that, that we can know that you came, that you did all the work that was necessary. And Father, even as we are fixing to take this supper... We're reminded of the necessities that you took out of the way so that we can have fellowship with you. Father, and surely our fellowship is with Christ this morning. Surely he is the reason. He is the method, the mode by which these things are possible. Uh, Father, we know that with you all things are possible. So this supper that we are about to partake in is a reminder of that. Father, first things are first, and we have our hearts to reconcile with you. We have to pause for a moment and and ask ourselves, do we love Christ? Do we love one another? Father, is there a barrier? Is Is there a hindrance separating us from your fellowship concerning one of those two things? Father, I pray that now we would make that right if the answer is yes. That we would take an opportunity, before we take in the Lord's Supper, and examine ourselves. Father, to pause... And ask ourselves, do we have fellowship with you? Is it unhindered? Does confession need to be made? Father, if so, convict our hearts now before we take the supper, lest we bring condemnation on ourselves. Father, your word is true this morning, and as it has been proclaimed in this sanctuary, may it be blessed forever. We pray this now in Christ's name. If I could have my deacons come forward for just a moment, please. Before we observe the supper, I would like to pray over this meal. And, uh, and ask the Lord to bless it and invite you all to this table. If you are a believer this morning and have confessed Christ as your Lord and, and, uh, and, and you have followed him faithfully, uh, we would like for you to partake in this meal with us. If you're visiting with us, we enjoy partaking in the Lord's Supper with, uh, with our guests. And, uh, and as our guests, we would invite you to this table as well. So let's pray and let's bless this, this, this meal now. Father, we are grateful this, this morning as we come to this table. Father, your table. Father, that's been prepared by the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, a table that we partake in, that we pull up ourselves to, though that we can remember, be brought into remembrance anyway, of the things that you did for us on the cross. Father, that, that the gospel tells us that you came, born of a virgin, that you were born and lived a sinless life. Father, to die as the Lamb of God, a sacrificial death. Father, in place of us. Father, you took upon our sins and you gave us your righteousness. Father, that you rose again on the third day unto power and great glory. Father, promising the same resurrection of those who go to sleep in that rest. Father, that you ascended to the right hand of power. Now where you make intercession for the saints as our one and only mediator between God and man. And Father, that you have promised to return again. Father, that in this promise, we await the anticipation and the hope of that return. Father, in the meantime, you've given us this meal that we can enjoy as brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, that we can can do this now in remembrance of the things that you have done for us. Uh, Father, we pray now as you search our hearts and you search our souls that you find fellowship. Father, not just with you, but with one another as we enjoy this meal together. Bless it now. Paul, speaking to the Corinthian Christians, explaining the institution of the supper itself, says this, For I have received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Paul continues and says this in the same manner. He also took the cup after supper saying, this is this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As we conclude uh, this morning's services, I want to finish with this, this thought, uh, Concerning Paul's words, he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that's what we did this morning. We proclaimed the Lord's death until he returns. So thank you for being here this morning. Um, Brother Richard's going to come and he's going to lead us in one last song. I'd like to offer a, a, just a brief prayer. So if you'll stand. Um, as the musicians come, I'd like to pray uh, as we dismiss. Thank you for being here. Thank you for this, uh, this special time together in the Lord's house, uh, not only of worship, but of the Lord's Supper, too. Let's pray together, and then Richard will sing us out. Father, we're grateful this morning for this time together as brothers and sisters. God, you have uh, been good to us in so many ways, and one of which is the visible representation of the church God, we have met this morning with our brothers and sisters here at First Baptist Church. And, Father, as their pastor, I'm eternally grateful, thankful for the, for the men who you've called to be deacons of this church, who, who serve and lead, uh, Father, in, 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 in very sacrificial ways and in, in very humble ways. Uh, but, God, you have empowered them to do great work. Father, I thank you for uh, our music ministry and, the, and the, the, the giftedness of the tech team. And, Father, all the people that contribute to this body, Father, you've gifted it. Um, You have brought us together uh, as one body, and I'm grateful for this, Father. I'm grateful for this church. Thank you for this ministry as it's ongoing. Bless us. Bless our faith, Uh, Father, and as we can now go our separate ways. Bless each one uh, until we meet again. We pray this in Christ's name, and amen.
0: Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Say. Oh.